All right. Yes, as Brent said, we've got a few uh, exciting things coming up in the church life. Do come along on uh, Thursday for our All Together. It'll be a great time. If you want to see some of the, uh, some of the new Kids Club characters, we may, we may give you a sneak insight into some of the video footage that was taken this week. Who knows? And uh, yeah, the big quiz. Big quiz is uh, coming up. There was, that was full last year. Um, we totally had uh, a packed house, and that's a team event. You can register uh, between four and eight people in a team. Um, life groups, it's a good opportunity to get people along, make up one or two teams up from your life group, invite some friends along as well, those people who like. It'll be lots of different sort of trivia, lots of different types of things, music rounds and picture rounds and all sorts of things. I worked very hard last year to, to Canadianize my questions. <laughs> we might even have a St. Patrick's Day theme. We might make it all Irish themed. You never know. <laughs> anyway, come along and find out. All right, we're working through Mark's gospel, and uh, we're up to Mark chapter 9, and we're going to read through verses 30 to 50 in a moment. Um, so I will have the words coming up on the screen here, um, but if you've got a Bible with you, do follow it in your Bibles as well. It's always a good idea to do that, um, so that you can, because uh, the, the words aren't always going to appear on the screen. They're not always going to be there, but you may want to refer to them. It's, uh, it's a helpful thing to do. So bring your Bibles, uh, look on your phones for your Bible as well. I won't think you're on Facebook, honestly. <laughs> All right, we're going to read through verse, uh, from verse 30 of chapter 9. Maybe I should turn this on and then that will work. All right. Okay. So, it says, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they didn't understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he said to them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they'd argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last, and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me doesn't welcome me, but the one who sent me. Uh, teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he wasn't one of us. Don't stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. Whoever for, whoever, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go to hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. Um, and if anyone, and if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. 
It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? (coughs) Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. All right. So lots in there. Wow. Lots in there. Um, So we're going to try and work through all of that and just see what that's about. I'm just going to put that back on the first bit so you can follow there. But um, remember, we're going to look at what true greatness is about really today, what true greatness is about. Now, Jesus and his disciples are going through Galilee, and uh, once again, Jesus is teaching that he's going to be betrayed and by one of his friends. And uh, he's going to be killed, and then he's going to rise again after three days. This is the third time Jesus has really talked about that, even in just the last chapter. Um, Since Peter declared who he was, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, Jesus has then been saying, okay, and this is what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to, I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed and and be badly treated and die. And then three days later, I'm going to rise again. And uh, the disciples still don't understand really what he's talking about. They've heard of the resurrection. They knew the resurrection was the end time. But, but what about Jesus dying? That seems strange. Who's going to, re- and him raising from the dead? And they just don't understand it. And then they're not getting it. But they're too afraid to ask him about it. I guess he's said it three times now. And they think, well, maybe we should have got it by now. And I don't know. I mean, to be honest, they're not even paying a great deal of attention to what Jesus is saying at that time, because instead, as Jesus is going and he's really inputting into his disciples, he's sent the crowds away. He's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really uh, spend time with my disciples and, and, and teach them. But they're spending their time arguing. They're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. And they spend a lot of time arguing. You just read through the Gospels. They spend a lot of their time arguing. They've already been arguing together about who forgot the bread. Remember, after the feeding of the 5,000, no, the 4,000, when they got into the boat. Who forgot the bread? No one brought any bread. <laughs> like baskets of it. <laughs> no one brought it. They've argued with the teachers of the law, even just in the last chapter. Um, Jesus came down the mount, mountain after he'd been transfigured. And he found his disciples arguing. Further on, we'll see them arguing and getting things wrong again. But here we have two more examples just in this chapter that we've uh, looked at. The disciples are walking down the road to Capernaum, and Jesus is hearing them arguing. Who's the greatest among them? Which one of them is the greatest? What makes them great? Um, You can almost imagine, I don't know how wide the road would have been, but um, walking down, and there's, there's 12 of them, and they're like arguing, well, which one of us should be nearest to Jesus? We want to be at the front. We want to be at the front of the line with Jesus. And, and you can imagine them, you know, Peter, James, and John saying, well, look, we were the ones who were taken up the Mount of Transfiguration. We are the ones who should be there. Jesus obviously likes us the most. And, and look at you guys. You were just all arguing when we came down. They could be all superior about it. And, uh, you know, you can even heal, the, deliver the guy with the demon. You, you're pretty useless. We're better than you are. And so this arguing and, and backbiting and competitive spirit is going on. Um, so Jesus calls them out on it. 
I mean, he knows what's been going on, but he says, so, so what were you guys arguing about then? And they don't say anything about it because they're, they're out of shame, out of fear of what Jesus might say. I mean, he's already just rebuked Peter. He's already, you know, Peter, when he said, no, this must never happen to you. You mustn't die. And, and Jesus is saying, get behind me, Satan. And then after the, argue, uh, after the argument, um, when, they delivered, when they couldn't deliver the guy from the demon, um, he said, oh, you unbelieving generation, faithless generation, how much longer do I need to be with you? So they're probably feeling a little bit scared and nervous of Jesus at this point. And so they're, they're not saying anything. They're not saying anything. But Jesus knows. He knows what's going on. He knows what's going in, on in their heart. And so this is what he's teaching them. He's not teaching them, well, how do you deliver people from demons? How do you heal? We, we, can, often, uh, we can often think that. You know, oh, we want some training. We want some discipleship. We want to be discipled. What, what are we going to do? How can we learn how to do the stuff? How can we learn how to witness to other people? And that's not what Jesus was teaching them about. Jesus is, is really getting down to their hearts. And he's using an example that he's already just seen. He's just seen it at that moment. Oh, they're, they're arguing. He doesn't go straight into saying, okay, now, you know, discipleship 101 is, uh, is, is, is how to write your own personal tract. He's like, okay, so what were you arguing about? What's going on? What's going on in your heart? Well, which one of us is the greatest? Okay, well, this is, this is what greatness is about. He starts to teach them about what true greatness is about. And he sits them down and he says, look, if anyone wants to be first, they must be the very last. They must be the servant of all. He's saying to be truly great, to be truly great, you have to be a servant. To be the first, you have to be the last. I mean, that's completely upside down. That is completely upside down in the world's thinking, isn't it? In anyone's thinking, in our thinking most of the time. Who does that? Really? Who does that? Who makes themselves last because they want to be first? That, that just doesn't go on. You don't see that at the Olympics. You don't, you don't, you don't get the speed skating and they're going, okay, I'll tell you what, you just have a bit of a start. I'll just go behind. You know, they, they've got to be there first. They've got to be out ahead. Now, if you want to be truly... Except if you're from Hungary. If you want to be truly great, <laughs> I can't even get into all that, but <laughs> just Google it. <laughs> if you want to be truly great, you've got to be last. And Jesus takes a young child, and, it, and he uses them as a kind of object lesson. And he says, look, if anyone welcomes one of these little children in my name, then they're welcoming me. And it, and it, and when they're welcoming, they're not even just welcoming me. They're welcoming the one who sent me. They're welcoming the Father. Now, at this point, he's not saying, imitate a child, be like a child. Actually, he'll say that later on. But right now, he's not saying that. What he's saying is, this, this little child is really insignificant. Certainly in those societies uh, that Jesus was living in in those days, children were not considered significant at all. They were, they were the least important people. So he takes this child and he says, this is who you should be welcoming. This is who you should be focusing on. And, I mean, it would have blown their minds. A child? We wouldn't even talk to them. We wouldn't even talk to a child. We wouldn't give any attention to a child. And Jesus is saying, no, it's to these that we must go. It's to these that we must welcome. 
It's to these we must be paying attention to. So we've got to apply that to today. Well, what does that mean for us today? Who would we welcome today? Who do we spend time with? What do we give ourselves to today? You know, do we have a servant attitude? Do we have that attitude of, of, of giving ourselves and, and serving other people? Or are we just concerned about our status? If we talk to other people at church when we gather, and, and hopefully we, we do, and hopefully we do welcome people who are new, do we just welcome people who seem like us? Do we just welcome people who we like? Or do we chat to people from any background? If we... If we had the mayor, Mike O'Brien, walked in, would we just treat him the same as anyone else who came in, maybe not looking overly smart, maybe not looking overly important? Do we chat to anyone? Do we chat to their children? Or do we just talk to the adults? Are we prepared to give ourselves for others? Are we prepared to give ourselves up for others? Are we prepared to give up our aisle seats? that some people come and get. I want to sit on the aisle. I want to sit on the end. Are we prepared to give those up for other people? What are we, wh- what are we, what's our heart attitude? And not just on a Sunday, obviously. Do we extend God's love to anyone, no matter what background, putting them before us? Because Jesus says when we do that, when we serve and welcome others, we're welcoming him. And not just him, but the Father. I mean, this isn't the only place that God that Jesus teaches this. Famously, Jesus teaches it, I guess, about servanthood when he washes his disciples' feet in John's Gospel. And also in Matthew 25, there's quite a scary passage in Matthew 25 where Jesus talks about the day of judgment and he talks about God separating the sheep from the goats. And the sheep he welcomes into his eternal kingdom and the goats go to hell. And how are they separated? Well, they're separated by what they do. And Jesus says, if you go and feed the hungry, give water to the thirsty, invite in the stranger, clothe the naked, visit those in prison, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. It's the same thing. It's the same thing as Jesus saying, if you welcome one of these children, you're welcoming me. If you're going and feeding hungry, giving water to thirsty, inviting the stranger into your home, clothing the naked, visiting those in prison. Those are the sheep. Those are the ones who are welcomed into God's eternal kingdom. Those who don't do that, those who don't respond in that way, they're the ones who are the goats. And there's quite a fearsome consequence for that. And and we haven't really got time to go into this, that passage in a lot of depth. When we can, we can start to think, that's kind of a scary thing. I thought it was all about faith in Jesus and not what we do. Well, yeah, it is. But Jesus is saying, if you have faith in me, if you know me, you'll be like me. You'll be filled with my spirit and you'll do these things that I do. So it will be evidence that you've got faith in me. That's what we'll be spending our time doing. We'll be giving ourselves to people who the rest of the world would think aren't important. Those don't sound like things that are important to spend our time doing. Those don't sound like ways to be great. But there's such force in Jesus' words. We need to take it seriously. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to change us and work in us so that we become more humble. Because it's only humble people 
who will do these things. That's how we become great. We live in a society that says we're going to be great by doing other things. There's certain things that we have. It might be academic greatness. It might be sporting greatness. I mean, we, we have just been at the time of the Olympics, and we see sporting greatness, and, and, we, and we're told, well, that's how we can be great, and we've got to give ourselves to being great and practice being great, excel at sports, and, and maybe one day we'll make it to the NHL. Maybe one day we'll make it to the Olympics or to an NBA team. And, and in our society, parents will sacrifice enormous amounts to get their children to that point. They'll sacrifice enormous amounts of time and money and they'll invest in equipment and they'll uh, invest in clubs and they'll go and, and spend time throwing the ball in the park, working on different plays. They'll join the team. They'll train several times a week for tournaments. They'll prioritize games and tournaments over everything else because they've got a goal in view. They want to be great. They're pursuing greatness. But it's greatness in the world's eyes. It's not greatness in God's eyes. And, and if we read the book of Ecclesiastes, we'll find that he points out it's all meaningless. He says it's a chasing after the wind. There's nothing gained under the sun. That's what the world chases after because we have something in us that wants to be great. And wanting to be great is God-given. But we just go in different ways. We take it off in the wrong way. How do we become great in God's eyes? By humbling ourselves, by welcoming those who have no high status, by pouring ourselves into the life of the weak, by put giving ourselves to the vulnerable and homeless and those with mental health issues and the disabled. And that makes us great in God's eyes. And we welcome Jesus in that way. I, I challenge us. As the church, in our parenting, as well as in our own lives, there's no greater thing than sacrificing time and effort in similar ways that the world would do for sports, but we can do it in encouraging our children to pursue greatness in God's eyes to a greater degree than other people would do. Let's model it in ourselves. Let's encourage our children in, in prioritizing serving in God's church Serving in God's kingdom, serving other people, letting our children see where true value and greatness lies, leading them in ways of humility and righteousness so that they may welcome God into their lives. They may serve others. Do they see that in our lives? Do our children see it in our lives, in what our priorities are? Or actually, are our priorities more in line with the world than in, in line with God's word? Do we serve those who are weak and vulnerable alongside our children and model that for them and encourage them in true greatness in the kingdom? Because that's the kind of greatness that reaps eternal rewards. So then we go on and we see another example of God's, of the disciples' lack of humility. The disciples wanting not to serve other people but to be better than other people. So John you know, <laughs> it sounds like he comes in straight after Jesus has just given this teaching on how to be great. And he's like, oh, okay. Well, never mind that, Jesus. Let me tell you what we've seen. We've, we saw this man, and he was driving out demons in your name. But he wasn't one of us. So we told him to stop it. I mean, <laughs> John's just not getting it. 
at all. Jesus says, don't tell him to stop. If he's not against us, he's for us. Don't stop him. I mean, we can guess that this was someone who'd been following Jesus for a little while. He'd seen Jesus heal. He'd seen Jesus drive out demons. But he'd also begun to see that some of Jesus' disciples were starting to do that. Some of the 12 were starting to do that. And so he thought, that's great. We can do that as well. And he thought, I'll do that. So he's starting to drive out demons in Jesus' name. He's, He's wanting to grow in his relationship with God. But the disciples didn't like it. Because he wasn't one of them. He wasn't one of the 12. He wasn't one of Jesus' chosen ones. He wasn't in the inner circle. So he said, no, 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 you stop. That's not your job to do that. That's our job. That's our job to do it. There's kind of an irony in it that they just tried to do that and failed spectacularly. But they're stopping this other guy who it sounds like is actually being quite successful about it. And Jesus is outraged. He says, look, whoever's not against us is for us. This man might not have been one of the 12, but he was still a follower of Jesus. He was taking early steps of faith. And what were his disciples doing? They were throwing a huge stumbling block in the way of him. They were stopping his walk with God, with Jesus. So Jesus says, hey, look, if anyone causes one of these little ones, one of these who believe in me to stumble. He's not talking about children here. He's talking about believers in him. If anyone causes one of these who believe in me to stumble, it would be better if a huge millstone were thrown around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Whew. Like that's strong words. Because he's talking about what his disciples have just done. He said, you you stopped him. And he was one of us. He might not have been one of your group. He was one of you. And you're causing his walk with me to stumble. And if you're causing one of these who are starting to follow me in faith to stumble, better to have a millstone thrown around your neck and you're thrown into the sea and drowned. Wow. Wow. got to feel the weight of these words. Jesus doesn't make us comfortable, does he? (laughs) These were his friends. This isn't some nice, cozy discipleship group. I mean, it's going to get worse in a way. It's going to continue. It's so easy for us to feel superior to others who aren't part of our group. It's so easy for us to feel that we're better than people. Maybe people who who are... not even in our church. Maybe they're not part of our group of churches. And we, and we just feel we're superior. We, we've, got it, we've, we've got God fig- figured out more than they have. We understand God's word better than all these other churches have. Really? Really? Do we? That's arrogance. That's arrogance to think that. It really is. Maybe, the, maybe they are in our church, but, but they're new to the faith. Maybe they've just got different views to us. Maybe they do things in different ways to us. So we tend to be critical. We can be dismissive of people. But these are people who love Jesus. These are people who are genuinely serving him. And maybe they have a different take on baptism or the gifts of the Spirit or the end times or whatever it might be that we, than we do. But they love Jesus. They're following Jesus. And they're preaching the same 
gospel and they're praying that people get saved into God's kingdom. So instead of competing against them, we have to encourage them and pray for them and come alongside them and love people. Some people get so consumed by opposing other believers for whatever reason. Maybe they've got a different political persuasion to us. Whatever reason it might be, we start opposing other believers. That becomes more of a focus than, than opposing the enemy. We've got an enemy that we've got to fight. We end up fighting other Christians. We end up fighting other churches. It's, it's crazy. We mustn't fixate on other Christians out of any sort of jealousy, out of any sort of sense of, of feeling that we're superior to them. We've got to realize we're all on Jesus' side. We're all fighting a common enemy. And we're no better than anyone else. Of course, that's not to say that anyone, everyone who does something and, and names Jesus is doing it from good motives or going to lead people in good way. There are people who would be deceptive. There are people, Jesus talks about people who are deceptive, wolves in sheep's clothing, whatever it might be. There's a place to guard the flock against false teachers. You look at Paul in some of his letters to Galatians and other places. He's, he's strong in defending the gospel and defending the people because people are, are, are saying, oh yeah, well, to be a, we love Jesus, but to be a Christian, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to do this. And, and Paul's saying, no, 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 that's a different gospel. So there's a place for defending the gospel. There's a place actually for those of us who are elders of a church, because our job is to guard the church and guide and govern. There's a place for us sometimes to call out and warn people against false teachers. Often they will not even be part of us these days. They might be on the internet or somewhere else that people writing books, whatever it is. It's part of our job. When the gospel's at stake and the eternal salvation of people is at stake, we can be bold and become strong in defense of the gospel. But Jesus knows that's not what's going on here. There's a difference. Jesus is seeing this is out of jealousy. The disciples are speaking out of jealousy. They're, they're telling people to stop driving out demons because of their pride. They wanted to be the ones in authority. They wanted the power. They didn't want other people to have it. So let's not allow jealousy to get into our relationships with others. Let's not be jealous of other people who are more gifted than us or even more successful than us. Because in our pride, we might feel we're actually more gifted than they are. And why have they got a position up at the front? Why is that person preaching? Why is that person leading worship? Why is that person doing this? I could do better than that. I'm more gifted than that. It's pride. It's pride, and we can all be there. So John says to Jesus, we told him to stop it. And Jesus says, no, 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 you stop it. You stop it. Take a look at yourselves instead. You're causing people to stumble. And actually, you need some radical surgery as well. There's things in you that you need to be looking at. Don't be looking at other people and judging them. What about yourself? So he says, you know, if your hand's causing you to stumble, you'd be better cutting it off. If your foot's causing you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye's causing you to stumble, pluck it out. It's kind of, it's kind of funny. I think Jesus was saying it deliberately with a bit of humor because you think, 
If you cut off your hand and cut off your foot and pluck out your eye, you're more likely to stumble. <laughs> but, but he was saying, no, that will stop you stumbling. That will stop you. St- that will actually help you walk more clearly. There's a bit of humor in Jesus' words, but there's some force in it as well, isn't there? Cut it off. Cut off your hand. Cut off your foot. He's not talking about look at other people, tell them what to do. It's the whole thing about if you, if you see a speck in your, in your brother's eye, then don't focus in on that. Take the plank out of your own eye first. Deal with your own issues first and deal with them in dramatic fashion. If there are things which cause you to stumble or sin, deal with them and deal with them forcefully and dramatically. So, of course, most of us will realize Jesus isn't literally saying we should cut off our hands cut off our feet, pluck out our eyes. But that doesn't lessen the, that shouldn't lessen the impact of what Jesus is saying. Sin's serious. Sin needs to be dealt with seriously. There's eternal consequences at stake. Jesus is talking, Jesus is talking about hell here. We've got to realize the force of what he's talking about. He's talking about hell in all of these passages. He's saying it's better to enter into eternal life crippled than have two feet and be thrown into hell. We need to deal with our sin. Now, the good news, and we'll come to it later on, is that Jesus deals with our sin. Jesus deals with the consequence of our sin. And we do receive forgiveness. And that's what Sue was saying. So we don't, we don't, but that doesn't mean we just go, oh, that's okay, we do what we want then. And if we haven't had Jesus deal with our sin, then we're definitely in a precarious position. Now, we can only do these things with the help of Jesus. We can only do these things with the help of the Holy Spirit. This isn't a gospel by works. This isn't sort your own life out and then you can come to me. It might look as though it's that. But for those of us who know God, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We know God. And we can receive his help. And we need to be ruthless in putting some of these things to death. We don't keep living in the ways that everyone else lived, in the ways that we lived before we knew Jesus. We put them to death. Jesus deals with them. We need to finally put them to death and live it out. So sometimes relationships or associations or habits do need to be cut off in order to maintain our purity, in order for us to keep walking with Jesus. Brent was talking last week about when he preached off uh, on not being yoked with unbelievers. He was saying, there's decisions that we need to make. And these decisions are important decisions. And there's decisions that we need to make here too. You know, maybe our late night viewing habits cause us to sin and stumble in our walk with God. So we need to cut off Maybe our cable or our internet connection. Maybe an unhealthy friendship's developing with someone outside of our marriage. We've got to cut it off. Cut off that friendship. Maybe the friends we hang out with or the places we go or the things that we might smoke or drink, they lead us into sin. We need to deal with them radically. And you think, well, that's all a bit dramatic. That all sounds a bit, a bit dramatic, a bit, a bit excessive. It is dramatic. It's radical surgery. Radical surgery like that will be painful. Some of these things we 
know that God is saying, you need to deal with this, it will be painful. We won't want to do it. It won't be easy to do it. We won't feel like doing it. But it's got to be done. Because it's dealing a blow to sin. And it's such a serious issue. Jesus says, you're my followers. You need to be salty. You need to be different. We need to live differently to the world. We need to act differently to the world. We need to be different. If you lose that saltiness, if you lose that distinctiveness, that flavor of God's life, then we're no different to anyone else. What's the use? That's what he's saying here in this last little section. Have salt in yourselves, he says. And guys, be at peace with one another. Don't be on at each other the whole time. Have this salt in yourselves. Be at peace with one another. Be different. Don't walk in sin. Make sure you aren't arguing with each other all the time, just trying to achieve status amongst each other, outdoing each other. Deal with your pride. Recognize what true greatness is. That's the lesson that Jesus was teaching his disciples. That was Discipleship 101. That was what he wants to deal with. Not how to, not how to preach. Not how to heal. How to deal with our pride. How to be great. How to be a servant. How we welcome Jesus and the Father. And it, it means living in a different way to others. And people won't understand it. People in the church won't even understand it a lot of the time. And, and this battle for humility and servanthood is ongoing. I know for myself, I've always found it to be there. And sometimes I didn't even see it at the time. And I look back at my life and I think, oh my word, how arrogant and proud I was then. When, we, when Debbie and I first got married, we, we used to kind of talk about and say, oh, do you know what? Our marriage, it's going to be so radical. It's going to be so amazing. It's going to be so sold out for God. We're going to be attacked by the enemy the whole time because, and because, of, because we're going to be so wonderful for God. We're going to be such a threat to the devil. Well, our, our marriage did struggle, especially in the first year or so, but that was more down to my arrogance and pride than it was our radical lifestyle. And then I think probably the time in my life I felt this battle the most keenly was when I, I got a job as a communicator for a, an, an NGO, a Christian NGO called Tear Fund. It's very similar to World Vision, really, um, based in the UK. And I was 27 years old at the time, and I was, I was being well paid for it. And the job came with a car as well. I got to travel the world. I got to go to um, Christian conferences and get to speak at them alongside other people who I, you know, you kind of seen as these amazing worship leaders and Christian speakers. And, and then I'm there and I'm 27 and I'm, I'm, I'm one of them. And then people on the same team as me, I remember one guy once saying to me, oh, you know, this is great that you've got this job. It's the first rung on the ladder of being really famous on the Christian speaking circuit. And I was like, oh, I mean, I reacted. I thought, oh, that's not why I'm doing it. But, but you know, we're supposed to be serving the poor here. The charity was to serve the poor. But the temptation creeps in, and you find it getting a hold of you. And you find yourself enjoying those things and enjoying being on the stage and enjoying 
being amongst those people. And I remember a few times, I remember vividly, I've always been someone who sits at the front of meetings. It's not because I get more space and <laughs> no one's blocking my view. But um, it's not because I'm a leader. But I remember standing once at the front of this meeting where I was going to be the speaker. And, uh, and I remember p- the worship time going on and I had my hands in the air. And then I caught myself and I thought, I'm thinking more about what everyone behind me is thinking about me than I'm thinking about my worship of God here. Like it was it was a horrible realization. And I thought, oh. and I, I, I had to go and stand at the back for the worship time. But like it had come in. And I'm like enjoying this limelight. And what do people think of me? What do people think of when I preach at these conferences? And it's a battle. And I saw the battle in other people too. Now there were now there's some people who I encountered who were incredibly humble throughout all of this. Some incredibly humble people, some of them you wouldn't necessarily have heard of, but they're, they're you know, pretty well known in the UK. Matt Redman was one, really humble guy, really humble worship leader. Terry Virgo, who's coming to our conference, he was amazing, still is, like such humility. I remember one meeting where I was actually in, in charge of setting things out, and he came, he was the speaker at this conference, and he like just came up and helped me set up. He's helped carrying tables with me and setting out chairs. And I'm like, you're the speaker and you're just helping me with this. It was like super humble. There were others who, who you see, because you see it more in other people, but it goes on in all of us. There were others who seemed to be losing the battle. Famous worship leader who complained that there were fewer than 200 people in the meeting and said, I'm not going to go out and lead worship when there's fewer than 200 people. A director of a major Christian organization who was such a powerful preacher, but then he showed us all a different side in how he spoke and acted towards a waitress when we went out for a pre-conference, a post-conference meal. But it's hard. And I'm not judging them because I saw it in myself. It's always a battle. It was a battle for the disciples. It's a battle for me. It's a battle for you. When I, when I left that job, people didn't understand. People didn't understand why I wanted to give up a job where I traveled the world and where I went and spoke at various places and where I had a company car and where I was getting well paid. And what was I going to do? I was going to move, I was going to go and start a kids club in, a, in an area of Sheffield and just give, myself, give ourselves to, to people who no one wanted to go and be with, really. And, and I knew it was the right thing to do. I knew God was calling me, but it was still a battle. It was still a battle to give those things up. Even recently, when we moved to Canada, I got a job in Ontario. Most of you will, many of you will know. And uh, again, some people wondering, well, why would you do that? <laughs> why would you move to Canada? Why would you, why would you give up what you've worked for? Some people said, because our church pastor had just died. And some people had, had said, you've served under him for 15 years. Now it's your turn to, you can take on this church. It can be your church. I mean, people saying it, and you know they're wrong, and I knew God wasn't calling me to do that, but there's a temptation there. Well, yeah, I could. And then, and then I'm like, no, 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 is that, no, this is what God's calling us to. He calls us to Canada, so we went. I got a job as an associate pastor in a church in Ontario. But you know what? It was, it was tough. And a lot of the toughness was stuff going on in me because there were things that I was asked to do that maybe I didn't 
feel gifted in, but I know I battled with my pride. I know inside I felt, I'm better than this. I can do better than this. I can do more. Why are they asking me to do these things? I should be doing this. I should be asked to do this. I felt some things that I was being asked to do were beneath me. If I'm honest, I felt I could do a better job than the lead pastor. But that's on me. That's, that's pride in me. That's not good. And it, it, it's ugly. And I, I s- began to see some of these things in me. And I'm like, it's ugly. It's ugly. It needs to be dealt with. We've got to deal with these things. These things are in all of us. You know, I, I'm giving a few examples from my own life. But I believe, and there's so many more. But I believe God wants us all to examine ourselves in this. And that's not to shame or condemn anyone. Because it's, it is a battle for all of us. But the Bible is clear. God hates pride. God hates pride more than anything else in the Bible. God says he hates pride. It's in conflict with the word of God spoken through Jesus. And we've got to be self-aware and we've got to be ruthless in cutting it off because it will cause us to stumble. It will cause us to stumble in our relationship with God and it will cause us to make others stumble too. And when we hear this teaching of Jesus, our natural reaction is to just be defensive. But we mustn't. We mustn't think we're being condemned. We mustn't confuse condemnation and conviction. Jesus is convicting us. He's not condemning us. The Holy Spirit works in us to convict us of our sin. But he doesn't condemn us if we love him. He works in us to bring about knowledge of forgiveness and love and acceptance of the Father. But he does want us to change. And we have to ask God's Spirit to change us and soften our hearts so that we are distinctive. And Jesus is calling us to be servants. In humility, it's accepting our place. It's knowing and accepting without God, we're nothing. Knowing that Jesus is the only way we can change through his spirit. It's the only way we can put to death our pride and all the rest of our sins. And we can submit to him. And Jesus modeled it for us. He modeled it for us. He humbled himself. He became the means and the model of our humility. We, couldn't, we can't deal with this if he hadn't dealt with it first, if he hadn't dealt with sin. But he then models it for us. I mean, what, back, back to the start of this passage, Jesus just seems so passive, doesn't he? He just said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they'll kill him. And, and in other places, he says how badly they'll treat him. And you're like, Jesus, what, are you just going to let them? You're just going to let them do that? You're the Messiah. You're the, you can do miracles. Are you just going to let them? Yeah, I am. I'm going to accept what God the Father wants for me. He's going to allow himself to be handed over to those whose actions are ungodly. Because it's his Father's will. And being humble means that we trust God, even, as Joe was saying, even through suffering and difficulty, even when there's injustice. Humility still says, God's just, God will vindicate us, God will lift us up in the same way that he lifted Jesus up. We don't need to fight for our right. 
We don't need to fight for ourselves. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus submitted to his father's way. In the garden, he said, is there any other way? But then he said quickly, no, not my will, not what I want, your will. I want what you want. I want your ways. And in doing that, he defeated the power of sin and death and the enemy. And then God raised him up. Then God exalted him. The Father exalted him to the highest place. Jesus submitted. He humbled himself. And the Father exalted him. So we can sing about how Jesus is exalted and Jesus is lifted up. Well, the only reason he is is because he humbled himself. And as we do the same, as we humble ourselves, and f then we'll find new life in Christ and we'll be raised on the last day. We come humbly to God. We die to our old selves. We admit our weaknesses. We ask for God's forgiveness. We receive his power through the Spirit living in us, changing our hearts. That's where we'll find freedom. That's where we'll grow to be those God's called us to. That's where we'll find true greatness. Let's pray together, shall we? Father God, we want to submit ourselves to your word this morning. And we recognize that the words that we've read this morning from your word are not easy. And it, it would be so easy for us to just dismiss them and say, oh, well, of course, Jesus didn't really mean that. But God, your words have such force. And we want, we want to humble ourselves and give ourselves and submit ourselves to you and to your word and what you want for our lives. And Lord, I know we can all, as we look at ourselves, we can all see ugliness that is not godly in us. We can see sin in so many different forms, wanting to take over our actions and our thoughts. And we see pride at the root of so much. And God, we want to put it to death. So God, I, I pray you would forgive us for those things that we've done and thought and those attitudes that we have. Lord God, I want to pray that we will be able to deal with these things ruthlessly in your power, in your name. Lord, that we might be those people who are truly great in your eyes, who serve others, who love others, who give up of ourselves and of our rights, even when injustice is done against us, even when we feel we're not in the place that we should be in. God, we submit to your will and your ways. And we trust you and we love you. And we believe you will exalt us in the way that you'll lift us up on the last day. And you will vindicate and you will judge. Thank you, God. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus.